everyone. Uh, I have a very unique privilege uh, among many, which is to sit down here and uh, watch, observe, and hear you. Thank you for engaging uh, the way you uh, did this morning. Um, it's just fun to watch uh, a worshiping church and a community uh, do that. So glad you're here. If you're with us online, I'm, I'm glad you're here as well. Um, but if you can come and hang out with us, uh, all the better. So uh, grateful to have everybody engaged. And if you're dialing us up later during the week on demand, uh, thanks for that as well. Now, before I get into this weekend's text in our Deeply Rooted series, I'd like to place some emphasis on one of the best ways to deepen your faith and then also describe a couple of ways that you can partner together as a church community. The deepening action I'd like you to think about right now and maybe even pray about is baptism. At the end of this month, the last weekend of this month, we're going to have baptisms as part of our service, and I'm pretty pumped already because we have like 15 people already committed, and we haven't even done the baptism prep kind of uh, gatherings that are happening today and then next weekend as well. So we're looking forward to celebrating these individuals who are taking a bold faith step, but now's the time for you to think about whether this is your next step as well. Now, water baptism is very prominent in the New Testament. It was modeled for us by Jesus, and so for those reasons and others... We continue to practice baptism as a way to identify with Christ and demonstrate our commitment to him as lifelong followers. So if you've been thinking about it, you want to know more about it, the whys and the hows, your questions are best answered in this little experience we call baptism prep, and we can just help you, coach you up just a little bit. We're offering baptism prep both this weekend and next weekend after both uh, weekend gatherings, and so if you'd like to hang out uh, after this service for just a little while, maybe uh, explore this together with a few others. Why don't you make your way to the fireside room? Pastor James will be in there and he'll just walk you through uh, some of those details. You don't need to register, just come and show up. If you can't make baptism prep today and you want, got to hurry, you got to get out of here, uh, you can also just go to our website. There's lots of helpful guidance there, spac.ca slash baptism. Then a couple of partnering opportunities. The first is, is membership. Uh, I'm going to be facilitating two exploring membership uh, classes, if you will, in the next few days today, right after this service as well. And then if you can't, you know, make an in-person one, I'm going to do an online version of this this coming Wednesday evening. Uh, this one is something that we'd like you to register for. Again, website is the best place to do that, spac.ca slash membership. Uh, we register in advance for this because we can uh, send you some material and kind of get you prepared so that we can make the uh, time together more efficient. So there's still a little bit of space if anybody wants to jump in today, but please pull out your phone now and, and quickly register and we can get you into that one today. And then finally, the last thing I want to mention is Operation Christmas Child is coming. This is the surest sign uh, that the holidays are approaching, right? Whenever we see, this is usually the first, like, oh yeah, uh, Christmas is coming. Uh, boxes for Operation Christmas Child will be available for pickup next weekend. So if you or your family, uh, maybe as couples or friend groups or life groups wish to do this together, start thinking about that, pick up a box and begin praying for those who will receive these gifts at Christmas time. Okay, that's enough of the preliminary stuff. Now let's uh, turn to our series and our text for this weekend. This is message number three in this deeply rooted series. And if you're just joining us now, this is a series of messages, nine in total, is our effort to try to describe what a deeply rooted follower of Jesus looks like and acts like and, and feels like. We've been uh, considering this sort of a, uh, a refresher on 
what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And this really flows out of our newly articulated purpose statement. As a church, we exist to help people belong and become, to find connections, to find relationship. That's the belong part. But the become part is become a deeply rooted follower of Jesus. But what we mean by that may not be clear to everybody. And so this fall, we decided we're going to work our way through the portion of the New Testament that is arguably the most complete explanation for what Jesus has in mind for his followers. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So two weekends ago, I opened the series with an overview of all three chapters, and then last weekend, Pastor Brody took us through a detailed look at the famous introduction from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, pretty famous stuff. And so what I'm going to do is pick up where Brody left off, and I'm going to teach from a text that I have read and reread and thought about and studied and taught when I was a youth pastor. I've probably taught on this passage more than any other. This is one of the most shaping, challenging, convicting little sections of the Sermon on the Mount that I've ever contemplated. And I'm not being hyperbolic. Like this one is sort of core of the core for me. It's not complicated, but it packs a big, big punch. And I feel like there's a lot on the line in this passage. And so before I unpack it, uh, I'm going to pray. And so would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church these days. For what has been taking place over these last few weeks and months. Thank you for very obvious life change, for momentum, for enthusiasm of so many who are pursuing you, some many through baptism, for those who are taking belonging seriously and joining groups and serving teams. Thank you for shaping our church as a worshiping community. Thank you for this season of gratitude and thanksgiving, for the holidays that are just around the corner. And we thank you now for our scriptures, which inspire and illuminate. And so by your Holy Spirit, would you make this text come alive for us? Would you speak beyond anything I might do this morning? We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the primary focus of this teaching is going to be Matthew 5, 13 to 16. But I'm going to start a couple verses earlier in, in verse 11 so that you get a sense of, of buildup. You get a little bit more sense of context. So here we go. We're, we're starting with the conclusion of the Beatitudes and then going into our text. So here's how the first part ends. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can it be made salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. 
This is absolutely the word of our Lord. And like I said, uh, it packs a punch. This is amazing teaching from Jesus. And, and one of the reasons I started in verse 11 is to show you that this begins with kind of a somber section. It's, a, again, back to last week's teaching. It, Brody started this out, and the Beatitudes begins with this beautiful invitation to the poor, those who are spiritually bankrupt and feel like they have nothing to offer God at all. God says, no, you, you do have something. To this group, to a, a bunch of ragtag people who don't think they have anything to offer, these new followers and probably a few skeptics, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come for you. It's not come for those who look like they or act like they or think they have it all going on, that they have life all figured out. It's come for those who, who know they have nothing to offer. And so Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, starts out really optimistic. They're, the words of Jesus are beautiful and inspiring, but the tone shifts pretty dramatically at the end of the Beatitudes. And I can imagine a first century participant in that, you know, hillside teaching session saying, oh, boy, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Jesus is saying to them, uh, things are going to get bad. Things are going to get hard for you. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be lied about. Some of you are going to be detained and maybe even thrown in jail. It's fascinating to me. Jesus is tempering some of his initial optimism. He's doing sort of a reality check. He's tamping down the, the optimism with this sober warning. That's the context of the familiar words that we read there, the part about salt and light. So now let's examine these lines sort of one at a time and think about the implications. So again, Jesus begins by talking about blessing, some kind of blessing that will come from being insulted. They may call you names. They may insult you. Sorry to tell you, it may not stop there. It may ramp up to actual persecution and violence. Um, contemporary Western followers of Jesus don't always know what to do with this text because generally this is not our experience. But these words will go down quite differently in certain parts of the world like Iraq and parts of India, North Korea and China, many, many nations in the Middle East. You read these words there and, oh, you feel it in a completely different way. There are today millions of Christian people, our brothers and sisters, who are experiencing exactly what is being described here by Jesus. These words of Jesus are their reality. They're experiencing property seizure. They're losing jobs because of their faith. They're enduring physical and verbal abuse. Some are raped and killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. Today, this is happening. And when Jesus shares this news with some of his earliest followers, uh, he's not speaking in the abstract. This will be their reality as well. Many of Jesus, most of Jesus' closest friends and apprentices die at the hands of executioners because of their allegiance to him. As hard as this is to hear and understand, Jesus says, if something like this happens to you, be glad, re rejoice. When, when this happens, be happy about it. And I, and I get that this doesn't really make a lot of sense. And probably even to those who heard it the first time, they went, wait, what? What are you, what are you talking about? Think about the fact that they're not going to suffer because they're 
they're haters or they're preachy or judgmental or because they act holier than thou, they're going to be persecuted simply because of their affiliation, because of him. Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted because of me, not because of anything you've done. And that's fascinating. Just because of a connection to Jesus, some people will be turned on because of that association. And so Jesus says to his followers, his friends, when something like this happens to you, be glad. Throw a party. As counterintuitive as this sounds, rejoice because there's a reward awaiting for you in God's presence. So when people tease you or belittle you because you go to church or because you participate in sacramental rituals like communion and baptism, when people don't take you seriously because you take the Bible seriously, Jesus says in God's space, there's reward. So at minimum for us, this is an invitation to think about our reality from God's perspective and see even the persecution that we go through through the same lens as heaven does. So when Jesus says, yeah, persecution's coming, um, I'm guessing that those who were with him that day hearing him teach, they may have been tempted to respond in a couple of different ways. They, they could respond with discouragement. And I, again, I, everything I've been saying, I, I understand that. I can see how easily it would be to be seriously bummed out by these words of Jesus. After all, he's just been saying all this hopeful stuff over here about you know, God's heart for the poor and, and the poor in spirit. But now he's saying the kingdom of God comes with a cost. Not so uplifting, right? Which is why Jesus says, don't despair. See your situation from God's perspective. Rejoice, he's got this. So discouragement and despair would be one way to respond to Jesus, to react to his teaching. Another way to respond would be to run away and hide. And I kind of get that one. To, to not let anybody know that they're connected to him in any way. To keep their association private and under the radar. So you're going to see me bouncing back and forth between kind of ancient world and, and, and current world. If, if we bring this idea current, running away and hiding might be akin to, you know, some of us who are tempted sometimes to run away and, and find some rural outpost in the prairie provinces somewhere and gather up a few people who look at the world just like we do and live communally and kind of build fences and walls and, and grow food and churn butter and stockpile ammunition and weapons and just sort of make this little enclave. People do that sort of thing. That's one way to run and hide. Another less dramatic way is to just keep everything about our faith, your faith, private, and under the radar. So when friends at work or school ask you what you did on the weekend, you don't say, hey, I went to church. You just describe, you know, what you did, like, you know, I went for a walk, I did some yard work, watched a game, that sort of thing. Maybe this morning on your way here, you stopped by Tim's or Starbucks or something like that, and when the barista, as you're standing there with your debit card, and the barista says, you know, hey, any plans for the rest of the day? Why they do that, I don't understand. But anyway, <laughs> any plans for the rest? You, you might have said, no, no, not really, you know. Instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to church. I'm on my way to church. Like, we just, yeah, we kind of get, <laughs> I get it, though. There's so much bad behavior in the Christian community right now. So I understand the temptation to hide affiliation, to hide your faith. Okay, so all of that is set up because I believe Jesus is addressing this very temptation when he uses those two beautiful metaphors of salt and light. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So now let's talk about these metaphors one at a time. We'll spend a few moments thinking about the implications of each and then we'll 
send you on your way. So first, let's talk about salt. Uh, as best as we understand how things work in the ancient world, salt is used in three ways. There's probably more than these, but at least these three uses for salt are prominent at the time of Christ. Salt is used to purify. In its raw form, salt is pretty simple. It's pretty pure. It's generally white, not a lot of discoloration. There's a purity to it. And long before the time of Jesus, going all the way back to the Old Testament days, salt is used to purify animals, to put salt on an animal to purify it and make it holy. So again, now bringing that forward to today. One way to apply Jesus' words, one way to apply the salt metaphor, is to consider this a challenge to live a pure life. To be thoughtful and intentional about what you do, your actions. To be mindful about what you watch, what you buy, what you entertain in your mind. A deeply rooted follower strives to let their thoughts and their actions reflect the way of Jesus. There's a certain purity to them. In addition to that, historically, salt is used for flavor. In the ancient world, salt is added to food to season it, make it taste better. We're still doing that now. So how does this one apply to us? Well, here's how I'm choosing to look at it. Deeply rooted followers of Jesus are supposed to bring God's flavor, God's joy, God's perspective and grace wherever they go. I'm pretty sure that this is what Jesus is after. Now, there's lots of different ways, places that we can bring the flavor of God, but the most obvious may be in our speech, our, our spoken words, or in the social media era, uh, our written words. When we speak to coworkers and friends and neighbors and family members, when we give voice to our thoughts and our ideas and send those words out into the interwebs, we're being challenged by Jesus to use speech seasoned with God's grace, with his kindness, and with his encouragement. And like Jesus, I think we're called to be people who champion the underdogs, who advocate for the marginalized in our communities and in our workplaces and in our schools, reminding everybody that there's, there's a, a sense that they belong to someone and helping people who've never really been allowed to dream to discover God's best for them and to help them succeed. That's the kind of flavor we're being asked by Jesus to bring. And then thirdly, in the first century world, salt is a preservative. So long before refrigeration is a thing, the way you keep your food from spoiling too quickly is by rubbing it with salt or soaking it in salty water and then laying it out to dry, coated in that salt mixture. So in some mysterious way, Jesus' followers then and now are called to spread throughout the world and preserve it, to keep it from going bad. Now, this one is, is daunting as well as exciting. It's a tall order, but it's kind of thrilling if you think about it, because this is an invitation from Jesus to be a kingdom influencer. Some of you have never considered the fact that you might be an influencer, like we... Uh, some influencing stuff is kind of weird, but we can all be influencers in this way. We can be influencers in our corners of the world, our workplaces, our schools, our teams, our families. You have a role to play in the kingdom of God everywhere you go, everywhere you are, at work, at a restaurant, at a coffee shop, at the mall, at Roger's Place, in the boardroom where high-level decisions are being made. Wherever you go tomorrow, you can be preserving 
God's intent for this world. You can be a preserving agent of God's kingdom. You bring heaven's perspective to conversations and decisions that are being made. This is a critical role that you and I play wherever we are and wherever we go. And I'll give you one last bonus thought about the salt metaphor. Think about how salt is used as a seasoning. When you put salt on food, how do you apply it? Think about it. You sprinkle it, maybe, you know, just gently put a little bit on. Too much salt is unappealing. Nobody sits down and eats a bowl full of salt, right? Anybody tried that before? Pretty disgusting, right? Uh, my wife, Kareen, is a connoisseur of salt. You can see this one coming, can't you, babe? Um, she's amazing in the kitchen. Um, but she has, we have more spices in our house than humans should be allowed to have. Um, I'm not kidding. We have a cupboard in our kitchen that is one-third devoted. The lower section is devoted simply to different kinds of salt. We literally have like a salt cupboard in our kitchen. Kareem grew up in a Hispanic community in rural Colorado, and one of the things that she and her friends used to do when they were little kids is they would take lemon wedges and cover them in salt and then you know, kind of suck that salty, lemony, sour. It's gross. It's absolutely gross. Uh, I like salt. I like it a lot. But salt is best when it's sprinkled out lightly. So I think another way to apply this metaphor is to season our surroundings gently, to spread our influence lightly and tastefully. I'm going to make the turn to the light metaphor in a second, but before we leave this one, I just want to remind you one more time how salt is used historically. It's a purifying agent. It's a flavor, and it's a preservative. So ask yourself this question in these moments. Maybe even courageously ask yourself these questions often. Do I bring purity? Do I bring flavor? Do I bring a preserving presence, the preserving presence of God? These are important questions because Jesus himself says in his Sermon on the Mount, what good is salt if it loses its flavor. Likewise, what good is a follower of Jesus if they don't bring purity and flavor and a preserving presence? Well, Jesus answers that for us when he says, not much good. I long to be a person of influence. Not of my influence, but of God's influence. I long to be the kind of person who helps God's space collide with our space, to be a person through whom God brings up there, down here, where heaven meets earth is really where the fun is. I hope you aspire to that as well. And all of that is captured in the first metaphor. Let's talk about the second one. Let's talk about light. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And this is a very well-known metaphor. And as I say what I'm about to say, give me some grace, because I have an undergraduate degree in sociology and an advanced degree in theology, I did not take a lot of science classes. We're not really a scientifically oriented family, but I know a little bit about how light works. So let me illustrate it like this. We are together right now in a brightly lit room. We could make this even brighter if we wanted to. We can light up this room really well. We have lots of light in here. But underneath where I'm standing is a dark space. Uh, there's a ho th this hollow under here. There's beams under here, there's a concrete base, and there's conduit, and there's cabling, and there's things underneath the stage, but there is a dark 
space. It's pitch black underneath here, but on either side of this platform are access doors and we could open them and reveal the pitch black underneath. And if we do that, what would happen is the light from this room would illuminate the darkness underneath. The darkness underneath the stage will not extinguish the light. This is how light and dark relate to each other. Light extinguishes darkness. The darkness under the stage can't spill out into a brightly lit room, but the light of this room can actually push into the darkness underneath where I'm standing. Light and dark are not equals. Light overpowers the dark. Light illuminates. Think of the expression, you are a light to my path. Think about headlights on a car. Headlights illuminate the path and show us where to go. Well, Jesus listeners, I think, have the same basic understanding of how light influences darkness. But I also believe that Jesus' words have some unique meaning to his original audience because mostly they're Hebrews, they're Jews. So here's a passage from their scriptures. These are people who've grown up hearing this text read to them over and over again. This is from Isaiah 42. This is part of the story of God. The prophet in Isaiah says, I, speaking for God, I, the Lord, I, the Lord, Yahweh, have called you, Israel, to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. Now, I realize what we just read there is awfully loaded, especially in light of what's happening in modern-day Israel today, right now. Historically, Yahweh God makes a covenant with Israel. He says, of all the nations, all the people uh, on the planet, you will be uniquely mine, I will be uniquely yours. That's a pretty cool uh, invitation, right? And then... God speaks to them, and th this is one of the places where he speaks to them and declares over them their identity. God speaks to Israel and tells them, this is who you are in your essence. You are, as a group, a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish nations. I'm not sure how this text is going to go down in Israel this morning. Applying this to contemporary Israel is complicated and thankfully not my responsibility, my, not my responsibility. Uh, I'm responsible for me and to a certain extent uh, I have some responsibility in this faith community. So I think what we ought to do is figure out the implications of this passage for us in our time and in our place. Because when Matthew pulls on this same thread in his gospel, he says to his readers, listen, Jesus is the light. And he even says in chapter 4, in the build-up to the Sermon on the Mount, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And this is the description of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he links it all back to the prophet Isaiah. And now... Jesus turns to his new Israelites, the new community he's forming, and he says to them, you are now the light. Israel was supposed to be the light, but mostly they failed. Jesus gets things back on track because he is the light. And then after that, he turns to his followers 
And now, in a way, he turns to you and to me, and he says, your identity is to be a light. This is who you are. This is what you are in your essence, to be a light in this community at this time in history. You're the light. And if nobody's reminded you for a while, there's no plan B. This is it. This is the plan. This is what... What God has been up to, this is where all the scriptures are going. This is the reality we step into. This is what God's been up to all along. He wants those on the margins, those who are excluded and far from him, to come into a loving relationship with him. And he says the way this is going to happen is through us. Like, that's the plan. Because you and I, we are now the light of the world. And then Jesus illustrates this with a couple of examples. He says, this is, this is how it works. This is how light works. It's like a city on a hilltop. Uh, you can't hide that. You can't hide that. In fact, in the ancient world, if you're traveling at night, it's after dark, you navigate your way by looking for the villages, by looking for those flickers of light that come, because you can't hide those. They're unmistakable. That's how you navigate the world. That's the nature of what it's like to follow me, Jesus says. And secondly, in the same way, nobody lights a lamp and then puts a basket over it or a bowl over it. That would be dumb. Why would you do that? It's his way of saying, it makes no sense for my followers to hide. My followers are to play a visible role in society as agents of the kingdom of God. So our task, again, in our time, is to figure out how. Like, is it through like Instagram reels and Facebook posts and, or maybe a megaphone and a box on White Avenue? Please, no, I hope not. Um, well, I think Jesus answers that for us. This is the end of this section. This is the final verse in our text, verse 16. Let your light shine. Let your good deeds, let your actions reflect mine. And that's how the watching world will be drawn to me. The idea is those of us who are hopefully pursuing being a deeply rooted follower of Jesus, hopefully will be known for what we do to help other human beings flourish, all in the name of Jesus. Okay, I, I'm about done. I need to close. Um, so before I do, let me leave you with an idea for how you might respond to this teaching. And I'm going to suggest you respond tomorrow morning. Okay, you can respond right now, you can you know, this afternoon, but I'm just going to give you a little challenge for Monday morning. So tomorrow, as you start your day, before you leave the house for school or work, before you go to the gym or to McDonald's or before you drop your kids at the day home or preschool, pray a prayer something like this. Here's the prayer, real simple. God, show me someone I can influence for you today. Maybe someone in whom you're already working. Someone you're already pursuing, who's soft toward you, who's looking for you. I'm suggesting you ask God to provide you with some low-hanging fruit, okay? I'm making this a massive challenge here. But listen, pray a prayer like that. God, show me someone I can influence for you today. And then pause for a little bit and wait. Just sit in that thought for a few moments because I think this is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer in surprising ways. Maybe he will give you a name of someone that you can call or text or maybe someone you can invite for coffee, or someone you can serve, or someone you can bless. God may very well 
plant in your brain the image of somebody, or he might make you ready for someone that you encounter throughout the day. You're just making yourself available to him. And maybe what will happen is just this fuzzy thing will happen in your brain uh, where you just kind of have like red jacket come into your mind. Uh, all of this is just, again, making you, you know, sensitive to the promptings of God's spirit. So if you do pray something like that and, and you really don't get anything specific, you just get this vague image of, you know, a person or, again, like a red coat or something like that. Um, and then at the end of the day at the grocery store on your way home, you realize that you're behind somebody in the checkout line who's wearing a red coat. <laughs> you might take a risk and say to them, I know this might seem a little bit weird, but could I pray for you? Is there anything going on in your life I could pray about for you? And see what happens. You never know. They may just say no. They may call security. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it just may be the way that God reveals himself and brings more of up there down here through you. So let your light shine. Would you stand with me again if you're able and let me close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the way that you have messed with me so much over the last few decades with this text. Thank you for the, for the invitation part, which suggests that uh, part of my calling is to partner with you. I, I, I thank you for that invitation that you give to all of us to join you in, in what you're seeking to do. So God, to, to those of us who in this day are very, very tempted maybe with good reason to hide our light because we're embarrassed or we're ashamed or we're frustrated with what we see in the Christian community sometimes. God, would you kind of restore a little bit of that boldness and then give us that cooperative spirit, that sensitivity to what you're seeking to do in this world and so that we might recognize the divine opportunities that you place before us. So shine through us, shine through this church, and collectively, may we bring more of up there down here, as it were. Pray blessing on this congregation, my friends. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. Want to check out Baptism Prep? We're going to start in a few minutes. God bless you as you go. There's no high